0: Good morning, church. I am thrilled to begin a vision series, a three-week vision series, which Rich alluded to earlier. Uh, Before I do that, I want to say one thing about the church survey. You remember that we sent out a survey to you and your email inboxes, and uh, I, first of all, I just want to say thank you for doing that. Uh, There's... You know out of the you know 65 or whatever amount of people we have in our church like 55 of you filled out a survey that is that is unbelievable that just never happens when you when you do a survey so thank you for for doing that uh for taking the time to do that i'm so grateful for that again unprecedented that that many people would would fill that out so that is a real credit to you thank you so much um i i uh i have read through every single comment that you have written and you're, I just want you to know, uh, you are a, a wise group. I am so grateful for your feedback and the things that you said and, um, and, and you were, it was helpful and, and you were honest and, and you, uh, many of you were, were very honest and, and some of the things you, you said were hard to hear. Those were hard to read and, and, and hard to, to look at and, and yet uh, I was not discouraged. I was not discouraged because I know that you said hard things because you care about this church. You said hard things because you care. If, if that, that's you, you are in it to win it. You have a dog in this fight. You have skin in the game of this church. And so therefore, you felt like you, we needed, the elders needed to hear uh, things from you. It, it wasn't only critical. I mean, there was, you know, it wasn't anything. It wasn't like the whole thing was super negative. It was very encouraging, very positive. And yet I'm grateful that you were, felt free to speak honestly to us. So the elders are going to be reading through all those comments and looking at those and evaluating those. and. And uh, really grateful for them. And you'll be really pleased to know that uh, many of the things that you suggested, as you had ministry ideas, things that you would love to see happen in this church, you'll be really pleased to know that many of the things that you suggested are are many of them already in the works. Things that you asked for and even even in a sense cried out for. Uh, those things are on their way, and I'm I'm really grateful for that. Um, I, I'm not too entirely sure about shorter sermons. I, I I don't know that that would have to be a, a, a miracle from the Lord to, to make that happen. So you're gonna have to really pray for that. I don't know, I don't know. <laughs> Assassinate the guy who's up front. I don't know, whatever you gotta do. But, uh, but no, but seriously, we are so grateful uh, for your input and feedback. You own this church and you love this church and, and that is why it makes it a pleasure for the elders to be shepherds here. So thank you for that. More details to come and, and more things in the work, especially uh, this, this coming month as we talk about the vision and direction of our church. Okay, let me, uh, let me pray one more time. I really need it. I feel like more than ever this morning. So let's go to the throne of grace one more time and we'll open up his word. Oh Christ, this is your church and you're going to have to build it. Oh Lord, we sit here as redeemed people saved Lord chosen without our permission without our consent you have swept us up into this grand sweeping plan of salvation and we are so grateful for it and Lord, you love the church and you love this church in particular, and you love it more than any of us ever could. Lord, you, you, as Revelation describes Christ, you walk among the lampstands of your church, intensely focused and concerned, oh Lord, with what is going on inside the doors, inside the hearts of the people who are inside the building. And Lord, you You have laid out the plan for us and we see we have skipped ahead to the end of the book to see how this thing is going to turn out and we are immensely encouraged by it. Lord, as we talk about the vision and purpose and direction of this church, we need your help. We need your help and pray that you would, as we open the bread of life, that you would feed and nourish our souls and that you would excite our hearts and that you would very literally, Lord, I pray that you would even shift and change the trajectory of this church for years and decades and maybe, unless you should come, oh Christ, hundreds of years. So we give you thanks. We place all of our trust in you. In Christ's matchless name we pray. Amen. You know, one of the reasons Christian life seems so, for so many, seems so bland and so boring is not because it actually is boring. Far from it. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. But perhaps it only seems boring because, simply because no one took the time to tell them. No one told them that to belong to Christ is so much greater than our personal, individual salvation. No one told them that to belong to Christ is to be a part of something infinitely bigger than our lives. Maybe maybe their Christian lives feel flat and one-dimensional because no one explained to them that to belong to Christ is to make a significant spiritual statement about the status of their soul which has Trinitarian roots which stretch back in time to before the world began. In other words, no one told them that to be saved is to be swept up into a story, into a drama, a cosmic drama of redemption, a saga of salvation, an ancient plot that had been predestined even before time began. No one told them. No one told them that what's in the Bible is way, way more than just a bunch of moral lessons on how to behave, but that what it really is are the blueprints of a plan, a sacred script, a theological play, a masterpiece of redemption that reveals this ancient plot predestined by the triune God even before anything ever existed. You see, no one told them that the universe is God's theater. The church is the stage, The Word of God is the script, Christ is the main attraction, the cross is the plot twist, and we, we are the ushers bringing in God's elect from every nation, and when all of history is over at the end of the age, oh, what a standing ovation there will be forever. See, that is Christianity. That is the plan. That's what it means to belong to Christ, and that is the opposite of boring. And see, the whole reason why I'm telling you this is because the cosmic stage upon which this entire drama of redemption unfolds, get this now, is the church. It's the church. I mean, you have to understand the church is not some small arbitrary footnote in God's plan. The church is not some merely a good idea or just one option out of lots of really good options. Rather, it is central to the entire operation. Put it this way, the mechanism, the means, the primary instrument through which God advances the plan of salvation is this thing called the church. And we are a church. And I realize we may not look like much this morning. Sixty or so people. We don't have our own building. We don't even have an office space to call our own. Virtually unknown in the DFW area. And guess what has two thumbs and doesn't care? This guy. Because small though we may be, we are a microscopic part of what God is doing in the world. Small though we may be, Heaven and hell are literally at stake in what we decide to do with this little ministry. And speaking of what we want to do with this little ministry, that brings me to my agenda this morning, which is to tell you what we're going to do with this little ministry, who we are, where we're going, and how you can be a part of it. This morning, we literally begin what I hope is a history-changing trajectory for our church. I mean, today literally marks a a new chapter in the life of our church as we unfold this three-week vision series called, O Church of Christ Invincible. And where it comes from is not just the song that we just sang, but where it really comes from is Matthew 16, 18, when Christ declared, I shall build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. See, the church, you have to understand this the church is the only institution that Christ ever promised to build. That has incredible weight and significance. You understand that? The church will be built. The darkness will be penetrated. The gospel will be proclaimed. The elect will be reached. And Christ will be triumphant. And so our job in a vision series, get this now, our job in a vision series is only to hitch a ride with what Christ is already doing in human history. So here's where we're going. You ready? Week one, today. We're going to see from the Bible the entire drama of salvation unfolding in the Bible and how we as a church can be a part of that. Next week, we're going to unfold all the priorities and values and commitments and distinctives that should define us as a church. In other words, what we do and why we do what we do. What are the non-negotiable, head-on-the-chopping-block priorities for which we are going to die as a church? That's next week. And in week number three, we're going to end this series unveiling a 20-year plan for the future, a 20-year plan for this church to change the world and how you here can make Christ's community a launch site for global ministry. Because we're not interested in playing games, are we? We're not interested in playing church. Rather, all we want is that Christ would work in our church in such a way that the only explanation would be a sovereign God doing the supernatural. I mean, isn't that what we want? It's exactly what we want. Because if we're going to do this church thing, Let's go all the way. Let's not be halfway. Let's go all the way and let's be instruments in the Redeemer's hands to make a lasting impact not only in Arlington, but also in Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. So here we go. The new chapter in our church begins right now. Here's where we're going. This morning, I want you to see three features of God's plan for history. Three features of God's plan for history that should inspire in you endless possibilities for Christ Community Bible Church. That's where we're headed. Three features of God's plan for history that should inspire you to see endless possibilities for Christ Community Bible Church. And so feature number one is this. Number one, the theater of God's plan. The theater of God's plan, which is the universe. The theater of God's plan. In other words, you have to understand this. The only way that we are ever going to understand our purpose as a church is if we understand God's plan for history first. Does that make sense? You see, the, the, like any story, the church has a context. Like I've said before, to be or not to be is not the question, nor is it our choice. Rather, we simply find ourselves here on the stage of the universe, swept up into what God is and has been doing in human history for centuries. You see, I, all of human history, stay with me now, all of human history is what I call a theodrama. A theodrama, theos meaning God, drama from the Greek word drao meaning to do, all of human history is what God is doing in the world, and what he is doing is inherently theatrical. It is wildly dramatic. You want proof? Here we go. Lights, camera, action. Act one, scene one of the Bible opens with creation. As God speaks the entire universe into being out of nothing. And in this universe, there is a planet called Earth. And on this Earth, there is a massive, breathtaking garden called Eden. And in that garden, God placed the first two people created, and their names were Adam and Eve, our first parents. And created in God's image and likeness, their job was to rule and subjugate the Earth. The man was the king, as it were. His bride was the queen. And their calling was to spread and fill the earth with God's glory by multiplying image bearers all over the face of the planet. And our first parents, they lived in paradise. It was perfect. Everything was as exactly as it should be. Everything that we wish we had now, they got to experience. At least for a while. Because, as you know, paradise was lost in chapter 3. As our first parents unleashed the virus of sin into the world, which, unknown to them at the time, would set off a chain reaction of events that, without God's intervention, would plunge the entire human race into eternal ruin and destruction. All of the horrors that we experience in this life now are shockwaves of that tragic event. Every soul, every Family, every neighborhood, every city and state and country and continent on the planet has been caught in the blast radius of that original sin, and there is no escape. I've said this before we are right now living in the ancient ruins of a civilization that in the beginning was created perfect. We live in this advanced technological age which seems so sophisticated and, and pulsating with life and yet even with all of its innovation and beauty, people don't realize that this world is actually a mutilated version of the original. This world is but a shadow of what it once was and what it will be again. And you remember when God showed up to the crime scene to confront the guilty couple? he essentially said to them, do you you realize what you have done? You have ruined everything. You've ruined everything. The terrors unleashed because of your rebellion will be simply incalculable. And yet Adam and Eve do not despair. Do not despair because I just want you to know that a plan had already been put in place to send a Redeemer to send a deliverer, to send a savior, someone to come in the future who would crush the head of the serpent. Someday someone is gonna arrive onto the scene of history and he will deal the devil a death blow and he will single-handedly solve the dilemma of sin and he will make all things again be the way they ought to be. And then, and then for the rest of redemptive history, the Jews are looking and waiting for the great serpent crusher. And all of a sudden he appears, nestled in a prophecy in Genesis 49, described as a lion from the tribe of Judah, to whom all the nations of the earth would obey. Isn't that interesting? And he appears again in 2 Samuel 7 as a great king to come from the line of David. And one day he would show up and have an everlasting kingdom. And then Psalm 2, he appears as a king and as the son and as the Messiah who will crush the rebellious nations. And then he appears again in Isaiah 7, 14. And that he would have this supernatural birth and even be born from a virgin. Even his very birth would indicate that he was none other than Emmanuel. God is with us. And then in chapter 9, Isaiah puts the pieces together, calling him a child to be born and a son to be given. And then he also calls him, in the Hebrew, El Gibor, mighty God. And he predicts that he would reign on David's throne forever. Two chapters later, chapter 11, Isaiah conspires to blow our mind by showing us that this king from David's line will show up to the battle and he will single-handedly end the reign of terror in the world. He will literally reverse the curse and effects of sin and he will make this place the paradise that it was supposed to be in the beginning. But then, in the greatest plot twist in history, Isaiah 53 shows us that the sovereign king would also be a suffering servant who would bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And how he would do that was by dying in the place of the very people who deserved to die. He would literally reverse the curse of sin and take the wrath that he didn't deserve for sins he didn't commit, and he would, break, he would redeem a new race of people, a new humanity from every nation and make them a kingdom and priest who would reign on the earth just like Adam and Eve were supposed to do. And then there was Silence. The Old Testament ends on a cliffhanger. You know that, right? It ends on a total cliffhanger, a 400-year cliffhanger of silence. And then after 400 years, God breaks the silence with a cry in the night. A barn in a dumpy village, God enters into the hay and manure of a broken world in desperate need of fixing. Jesus Christ, the peasant, the carpenter's son—really, this, Th- this is going to shake the Roman Empire. That this, this is going to save the world. You're darn right he is. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as God with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. Don't you see? The entire Bible is a love story. But it's a love story of cosmic proportions. Not boy meets girl, but world meets the God who created it. And the world falls and runs after other lovers and subjects itself to eternal ruin and destruction. But God, in the end, wins his lover back. How does he do that? By entering into history as one of the very people that he created. And then slain for sinners, he willingly crawls into the belly of death itself and then blows it up from the inside. He gave the grave a beatdown. A conquered death, proving that he himself is the remedy to the deepest dilemmas of life. And one day when he returns to establish his kingdom, he will in that day make all things be the way they ought to be. Paradise lost will be regained. Tell me, tell me that God doesn't have a flair for the dramatic. That's in your Bibles, all of that is. Where the first man couldn't hack it, the son of man will. Where the first Adam failed, the second Adam will succeed. The first king and his bride lost the planet, but the king of kings and his blood-bought bride will regain the planet and rule the planet just like Adam and Eve were supposed to do. That's the plan. That's how it's all going down in the end. Scene by scene, play by play, blow by blow. And what that does is two profound things for our church. Number one, it defines our mission. You see, that plan of salvation, that gives us mission focus. It gives us mission clarity. It guards us from wasting our time on things as a church that we have no business spending our time on. It gives us great mission clarity. I mean, mean, don't you see the reason why we have fear and anger and anxiety and panic attacks and pride and greed and lust and envy and division in our lives, the reason why we have those things in our lives is because we have forgotten what God is doing in human history. And what he is doing is obtaining a bride of redeemed souls for his son from every nation and your lives are a part of that story so what that means is all your lives are are a living breathing fork in the road for King Jesus for every single person that you meet do you view your lives that way because you should and you must Number two, what this does for our church, the plan of salvation guarantees the success of our mission, doesn't it? It guarantees the success of our mission. I mean, you're never supposed to skip ahead to the end of a book and and spoil the ending. But this is one of those times when that's okay. In fact, you should do that. Because when we look ahead to the end, what we see is a kingdom and nations and redemption and a king and everything the way it is supposed to be. And what that does is give us courage. Courage not just to proclaim the gospel, but courage to help us see that we don't have to live for money or a career or any of our earthly securities. We can put all of the eggs of our hope in the basket of the sovereign plan for history. If you like to gamble, then the Great Commission is not for you because this is a sure thing. Endless possibilities for our church. One last thing about this. I I just, I I love imagination. I think being an only child forced me to use my imagination. I think about this. weren't, Weren't all the adventures that you pretended as a kid? What were they? Think about what they were. What were those adventures that you pretended as a kid? some sort of death-defying heroics that you pretended. I was an FBI agent as a kid in my imagination, and my codename was Icebreaker, and I carried a 45 right here. Not a, not a real one, of course. I was Icebreaker, so you can call me Icebreaker from now on. I actually prefer that. That was my adventure. What was your adventure? Here, here's my point. Were not all of the adventures that you had as a kid preparation for this? Aren't they? A real heaven, real hell, real people, real souls, a real devil, and a real Savior who will win it all in the end? Oh yes, oh yes, this thing is gonna go down exactly as planned. Which brings us to feature number two. Feature number two of God's plan for history. This should inspire endless, endless possibilities for Christ's community. Number two, the stage of God's plan. The stage of God's plan, which is the church. Because that's the question, isn't it? Why the church rather than nothing? Why this thing called the church rather than something else instead of the church? Because God could have used anything he darn well pleased to advance his plan, and yet what he gave us, what he designed, was the church, which seems kind of clumsy, doesn't it? I mean, is that really, is that really the best instrument to carry out the plan of salvation? Guess what? It is exactly the right instrument, apparently, because that's what God has designed. You have to understand the church is the grand scene it is the stage upon which Jesus Christ displays His glory to the world. But you see what's really funny to me is that no one in the Old Testament ever saw the church coming, did they? No one ever saw it coming. Because think again about God's plan for the world. T- take nations, for instance. If you wanted to be, have your mind blown by your Bibles. You just follow the thread of nations from Genesis to Revelation and see where it takes you. Take nations, for instance. Genesis 11. Remember that? Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, the seeds of socialism. Mankind is joined in this united coalition of evil against God. They remember what the issue was. They refused to spread throughout the earth and and spread God's glory throughout the earth because what they wanted not was God's glory, but their own glory. Remember this, God shows up, breaks up the party, spreads, the, uh, changes their languages, divides them up into different languages, spreads them out all over the planet, and in that moment, nations are born. Isn't that interesting? Nations came into existence as an act of judgment by God on sin. Chapter 12, very next chapter, God chooses Abraham and makes an unbelievable covenant. Paraphrased, Abraham, I not only choose you to be my special people on the earth, get this now, but I choose you to be the instrument through which blessing will go to the nations. Did you hear that? From the very beginning, God had a plan for the nations, what? What was the plan? What was the plan? It's in your notes. Psalm 22 verses 28 and 29. Give us part of the answer. Look what it says. Notice the future tense of the verbs. And all the ends of the earth shall remember, and they shall return to Yahweh. And all the families of the nations shall bow down, shall worship before you, for the kingdom belongs to Yahweh, and he rules over the nations. Did you see that? God's plan for the nations is this global reclamation project where once again the nations worship Yahweh alone. His plan is to reverse the train wreck of Babel and bring the rebellious nations back into subjection. There will be a future kingdom on this planet when all the nations will worship Yahweh. But there's more. Isaiah 49.6, also in your notes. Listen for the nations. By the way, this is a conversation between Yahweh and the anointed servant, the Messiah. In other words, God the Father speaking to God the Son. This is inner Trinitarian dialogue, centuries before Christ even showed up. And listen to what the Father says. It is too small a thing for you to restore the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. No, no, if we're going to go through the trouble of sending you to the earth, I will also make you a light for the what? The nations to bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Do you hear that? That's what he just said to Abraham. That's what Psalm 22 is talking about and listen to Daniel 7:13 and 14 also in your notes describing the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Daniel says, "I was looking in the visions of the night and behold, behold with the clouds of heaven one like a notice son of man was coming." And was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and majesty and a kingdom, and all the nations and peoples and tongues shall serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom which will not be destroyed. Do you see the finish line of history? Do you see where this thing is all going in the end? Salvation will reach to the ends of the earth. (laughs) All the nations will be ruled by a global kingdom, by King Jesus ruling this planet. And and you might be thinking, Jared, why are you telling us this? Well, the point is this (laughs) what God never told Israel. In fact, what he never even revealed until we get to the New Testament is that the way, get this now, the way he would get salvation to the ends of the earth was through a message called the gospel, which would be spread through local gatherings of redeemed people called the church. There it is. You see, the church is not merely a community center or a country club or merely a place to socialize and eat donut holes. Important donut holes are though to the mission, just so you know, that's my my official doctrinal stance on donut holes, they're really important. Rather, but rather, what the church is is a body of redeemed souls. Local embassies of God's kingdom, the church, get this, is a global outpost of joy in a world of despair. That is the church. You see, the church with all of its flaws and blemishes and weaknesses is God's weapon to break open the world. And we are a church, which means our mission is more weighty and urgent and significant than most people have ever even dreamed. And what is our mission? You know what it is. You know exactly what it is. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. So familiar, but no less profound, is it? It's in your notes. Listen very carefully. The risen Christ meets his disciples on a mountain in Galilee just like he told them. And with faces bowed down to the ground in worship, Christ says these solemn words. All authority in heaven and on earth was given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples, here it is, of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you all the days, even until the very end of the age. Do you hear this? Your mission Should you choose to accept it, and I hope you do, because either we do or we waste our lives, our mission is to make disciples of all the nations. That's the mission to which you, all of you, are called. Now I know, I know that the second I read that text, the second I read that, that that most people automatically assume that I mean cross-cultural missions. That I mean that you need to get on a plane and go overseas and learn a new language and you need to spend your life in a foreign country declaring the gospel. And in so doing, they automatically assume that that text doesn't apply to them. Let me shift your thinking just a little bit this morning. Listen very carefully to what I'm about to say because what I'm about to say is so crucial to the future of this church. Here it is. Everything the church does is great commission work. Everything. Everything. In one way or another, at least it's supposed to be, directly or indirectly, what we are doing is making disciples that plant churches, that reach God's elect and advance the Great Commission. Now it's true it's true some people some people are called by the church to leave their homeland go overseas and proclaim the gospel in a foreign land that is true that is part of this but it's not only that because hear me when I say that those who go and those who stay have the exact same mission This is incredible It's incredible and our mission is to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples until all of God's elect are reached and the plan is over. The question is, did you know that? Did you know that the mission of your life is not just the moral improvement of your life, but the joining of a movement as your life? Did you know that your mission an occupation as a Christ follower is to make disciples regardless of your age or occupation. And yet the burning question is, what does it mean to make disciples? What, what does it mean and how do you do this? And what it means is not just that you share the gospel. It, it doesn't just mean that. It includes that, but it's not only that. Rather, to make disciples is the entire process from conversion to maturation, from baby to maturity, where you are intentionally investing the word of God into the life of another person and someone else is investing the word of God into your life, teaching and instructing and counseling and encouraging and strengthening and exhorting and warning and even, if necessary, rebuking. You see, making disciples, all it is, all it is, is repairing wounded sinners with the Word of God so that they can go back out there and fight in the trenches of the Great Commission. That is making disciples. And isn't that exactly what Christ said? I mean, did he not say that? that central to making disciples was the faithful, intentional investment of the word of God into other people's lives? Look Look at verses 19 and 20, look what he says. You notice something very interesting, the word make disciples, that's one word of the Greek and that's the main command, that's the main verb in the whole text. But the words baptizing and teaching, those are helping verbs that describe exactly what making disciples looks like and what did Christ say that we are to teach those we are discipling and that those who are discipling us are to teach us? What did he say? Teach them to observe everything I commanded you. Teach it all. A. To Z, give them the whole counsel of God. That's a lot of that's a lot of scripture. That's a lot of instruction. See, I've said this before, I've never I'll never be done saying it. The health of any church does not consist primarily in its programs, but in the commitment of each member to make the spiritual growth of one another their top. Priority. Faithful, intentional investment of the sacred text of Scripture into the lives of one another. That's how this thing is going to get done. It's exactly how it's going to get done. And you have to understand, our wells, biblical wells, have to be deep enough, don't they? Our biblical wells have to be deep enough so that when our comrades have their guts ripped out by the trials of life, we have something to give which is exactly why we're doing equipping classes. Shameless plug alert. It's exactly why we're doing them. Not just to fill your head with a bunch of data. To This is another class, you take classes because we want to be intellectual and academic. That is not what we're doing at all. We are filling your wells with biblical truth so that you have something to give so that you can disciple and encourage and teach and instruct and you can talk to people in Chick-fil-A about the gospel and not feel like you have to be silent because you don't know what to say. We want to put tools in your hands. That's what we're after. That's all we're after, to make you spiritual physicians who nurse one another back to health with the medication of Holy Scripture. That is is why these classes exist, and so I encourage you, I encourage you to be a part of them. And let me say one more thing about this. I just want you to know, the most important legacy that you can leave for your kids or your grandkids is is not an inheritance, it's not. Or a career, or an empire, or a kingdom, or anything that you can't take with you after you die, no, the greatest legacy that you can leave for those after you, get this now, Is generational impact where you entrust the riches of Christ to someone who then go on and do the same who then go on and do the same who then go on and do the same until history is over and we are in the kingdom exponential generational impact that is where we're going as a church and what that does is raise the question, doesn't it? Okay, Jared, I, I guess I get that. That's kind of a lot. But what does that mean for our church? W- w- what does this say about where our church in particular is going? Because there are millions of churches in the world. What's, what makes ours so special? Why are we here? There's lots of churches, lots of options. What is it that we're going to devote ourselves to as a church that makes this a church that I want to stay and be involved in and plugged in at and be used to advance the Great Commission? And that's exactly where we're going next. The third feature of God's plan for history that should inspire endless possibilities for Christ Community Bible Church, number three, the cast or characters of God's plan. The characters of God's plan, namely this church, in the drama of salvation. Because in any drama, you have to have a theater, don't you? And you gotta have a stage, and and you need a script, and and you need need actors, you need uh, a cast of characters on the stage in the play, and in the drama of redemption, you have all of those things. The universe is the theater, The church is the stage, the word of God is the script, but you also have a cast, a cast of characters in the play, so to speak. You have the triune God who wrote the script, directs the play, and acts on the stage as the star of the show. You have angelic beings, some of whom are evil, some of whom are good, and then you have the extras, the supporting players called the elect in their local churches, doing whatever it is that local churches are supposed to be doing, which again raises the question, okay, well, what is this church supposed to be doing? What is our mission as a church? And I thought you'd never ask. Here we go. I'm going to give you our mission statement as a church. Fresh from the kiln, forged in the furnace, literally of hours of biblical and theological Reflections some of which we wrote ourselves some of which we borrowed from others who do this a little bit better than us But that here is our newly minted mission statement as a blood-bought bride of Jesus Christ Here's why Christ community exists. Are you ready? We exist To prize portray and proclaim the supremacy of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples. That's it. You can't go now, <laughs> that's not what that meant, but that is our mission statement. We exist to prize portray and proclaim the supremacy of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples. And and I know you're just now hearing this for the very first time, but when I read this and when I think about this, just a fire burns in my soul. Because when I think about prizing and portraying and proclaiming the supremacy of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples, I just think we can't lose. This is exactly where God says human history is going. This is a total win. This is God, what God says is going to happen anyway. The mission statement just grips me because it is so certain and it is so guaranteed because again, what we're after as a church is not having our own little private party while the world burns. Are we? No. No. What we want Is that even a hundred years after all of us are dead, unless Christ should come first, that this church is not only in existence but increasing in its Christ exalting impact in the world. Isn't that what we want? That a hundred years, a century after all of us are dead, that our great great grandkids have not left but they're still in this church. And they are leading the charge as a battalion of soldiers in the trenches of the Great Commission making an impact for the glory of Christ. Isn't that what we want? That's exactly what we want. And that'll happen if we are committed even at great cost to ourselves to prize, portray, and proclaim the supremacy of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples. And so, for the good of our own souls and the health of this church, I'm going to preach that. I'm going to unfold that a phrase at a time. It won't take all day, promise, but I'm going to unfold that a phrase at a time because this is not just a statement that sort of collects dust and we put it aside. Well, that was nice. We're moving on now. No, this is the nuclear core reactor that drives everything we do. So here we go. We exist. Stop there. (laughs) We as in us a body of people created by God for the glory of God. We are a body, a bride of redeemed souls, chosen by the Father, given to the Son for whom He would die and purchase with His blood. We are a battalion of ransomed souls in the trenches of the Great Commission, and we do not exist to be famous or popular or have a big deal made about us, but we exist to do three things which are to prize, to portray, and proclaim. That's what we exist to do as a church, those three things. But again, that raises the question, to prize, portray, and proclaim what? Because those three verbs, they need an object, and they all three have the same object, which is the supremacy of Christ. We exist to prize the supremacy of Christ, To portray the supremacy of Christ and to proclaim the supremacy of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples. Don't you see? The supremacy of Christ is the gravitational center that holds the entire thing together. This is what all of life is about. Everything else is subservient to the supremacy of Christ. In fact, you could put it this way. The supremacy of Christ, prized, portrayed, and proclaimed is the very meaning of life itself. But notice, notice we exist to prize the supremacy of Christ. You see, our first order of business as a church is not to be a bunch of busy bodies loaded down, buried under a frenzy of activity. We should be busy, and we will be busy with serious, good, profitable, proactive things, but our first order of business first is to prize, to enjoy, to savor, to be satisfied, to be captivated, to be exhilarated, to be enthralled with a massive, uncontainable object that satisfies the deepest longings of the human soul. And the only thing that fits that description is the infinite, eternal, uncaused, uncreated, sovereign God who became man for us and for our salvation, namely Jesus Christ himself. And we exist to prize him. And how you do that is through his word. How you enjoy him is through his word. I mean, you really need to understand this is so freeing and liberating. I love this. We enjoy Christ through his word. And you just need to know that the greatest service that you can render to your own souls and to this church is to have long, long meditation upon who Christ is from the pages of scripture. I mean, having your mind blown by who God is from his word is the most loving and selfless act that you can do for this church. It is. It is because inevitably, unavoidably, eventually that's going to translate in how you love and care for one another in this body. That's the greatest secret to a church that makes an impact, a church full of people who meditate on scripture, which means if you are still looking for a class to sign up for Rich Caskey's class on meditating and studying the Bible is for you. Which brings us secondly, we exist not only to prize, but to portray the supremacy of Christ. As in, the supremacy of Christ is displayed through our lives as we look to him for grace for every need. You see, what I'm talking about is authentic life change and transformation because the world can tweak their behavior They can change some bad habits. They can overcome addictions. They can conform to and play by the rules. They can turn over a new leaf. But only Jesus Christ can transform a soul. Only he can raise people from the dead. That's what I'm talking about. Authentic life change and transformation through the word. You see, our lives, our lives are to be lived in such a way that we show the world that the Christ in whom we believe is a Christ that saves and a Christ that satisfies and a Christ that delivers and a Christ that transforms and a Christ who is worth giving everything up for. We exist to portray him. But finally, number three, Christ's community exists to proclaim the supremacy of Christ, we exist to proclaim the supremacy of Christ to one another first. I need you to help me. I I, I can I am a very easily self hitty, self-focused kind of person who, who my default is to think about myself. And when that happens, I grow discouraged and I, I grow burdened and, and I grow even somewhat depressed. And I need you to come to me and not, not tell me that I'm awesome. I need you to tell me that Jesus Christ is supreme. I need you to get in my grill and I need you to tell me that Jesus Christ rules it all and that he is the king. I need that from you. I'm just a guy and one guy who who can be prone to discouragement because all I do is think about myself. And I need Christ. I need you to help me with that. And that's what we need to do for one another. But we also exist to proclaim the supremacy of Christ to the world. You see, we are not mimes. The Great Commission is not a silent movie we exist to proclaim. Isn't that what 1 Peter 2.9 says? That's exactly what it says. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are not undercover agents for the Great Commission concealing secrets of national identity, preventing what we know from leaking out there. It's exactly the opposite. We are blood-bought ambassadors of the risen Christ, precisely revealing secrets of eternal security, going public with the most shareable and unembarrassing message in the world, namely that there is a Savior who has come and he has supremacy, note this, in all things. As in, he rules it all. Everything belongs to him. He has all authority in heaven and earth, his house, his rules, he calls the shots. He is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He is the one before whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And if need be for the risk of our own lives, we tell the people in our lives that Jesus Christ is the all-satisfying solution to the deepest dilemmas of life. And notice, notice, we're almost done here. Notice, we do this for the joy of all peoples, as in nations, as in ethno-linguistic people groups. Remember Genesis 12? Remember Isaiah 49? Remember Daniel 7, the nations there? That's where this comes from. And, and, And what we exist to do is make the nations that's what we're after, to make the nations happy. We are instruments reversing the train wreck of Babel. We are those, we, we want exactly what the Psalms describe, which is a global kingdom on the planet and all the nations rejoicing in the Messiah who's come, where every tribe and tongue and nation and people rejoice in the King who has come. We want exactly What Psalm 67 describes. And I close with this. And I'm going to read it, and this is my prayer for our church God, be gracious to us and bless us. And let him cause his face to shine upon us, in order that your way may be known on the earth, your salvation among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you shall judge the peoples with uprightness and you shall guide the nations on the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its produce. God, our God, blesses us. God blesses us that all the ends of the earth may fear him. Don't you see? All we're after for this church is to be a global outpost of joy in a world of despair. That's why this church exists, that's why you exist, and I want you to join me in making Christ's community a healthy church that changes the world. Now, what that looks like for you and for this church, that remains classified until next week. But for now, all you need to know is this. This This is what I want ringing in your souls as you leave. You just need to know God's plan is invincible. His power is inexhaustible. His kingdom is unshakable. His word is unbreakable. His promises are irrevocable. And the future which he has already written is absolutely unchangeable. That's the plan. That's where we're going. I want you to join me Let's pray. Oh, Lord, you're going places with or without us. You don't need us, but when you saved us, you automatically recruited us into a mission. Oh, how strange it is, oh, Lord, that you use human instruments to advance your plan. Some days, Lord, we're just trying to get through the day and and not punch anybody. Lord, some days we're just trying to get through the day and, and, and not yell at somebody. Some days we just kind of want to get back into bed as soon as we can and have the day be over. And, and, and it's almost unthinkable to, to be a part of some global cosmic mission. Lord, sometimes that doesn't even translate. It doesn't even enter our thinking ever. And Lord, I pray that you would help us just to see that this plan unfolds in the details of our lives. The small details, nothing big, seemingly insignificant, unnoticed by the world. It's the little things that also advance the plan, oh Lord, because we know that every war is fought one battle at a time. Every battle is fought one bullet at a time. And so help us with the bullets of our lives to be faithful. The little bullets of our lives, well-aimed, help us, Lord. Use us. We're just people. We're just dust, as Psalm 103 says. So we ask you, ask you for your help, and we look forward to how you will use this vision series to help set a trajectory for our church for the weeks, months, years, and decades to come. And it's in Christ's matchless name that we pray. Amen.